Today's podcast is brought to you by Premum, connecting Hemong fellows, general oncologists, and APPs with leading subspecialists for quick, free advice when you need it. Check out their website using the special fellow on call link at tfoc.primum.co. Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we are continuing once again on our multiple myeloma journey, and this time talking all about initial approaches to treatment. Yeah, I'm excited to get into this. I'm starting back up the VA shortly, and I'll be seeing a lot of multiple myeloma. My my current clinic is benign only, but there I'll be a mix of benign and malignant, so I'm, I'm ready to talk about this. And listeners, this is going to be a key episode as we've built up the idea of diagnosis and risk stratification of myeloma. We are now going to take you through several episodes going through the treatment. We're going to give you historical perspective and give you current perspectives. You'll finally be able to understand when to think about a quadruplet versus a triplet therapy, when to think about something like a carfilzomib-based induction versus a bortezomib-based induction. We'll have all of that for you. So excited for you guys to listen to this. And for sure, listeners, if you haven't already tuned in to our episodes this time around, we highly encourage you to go back and listen to our prior episodes in the Myeloma series, just to make sure that all of this makes a lot of sense, because we will be referencing especially a lot of those drugs that we talked about in the pharmacology episode and alluding to some of the fundamentals that we talked about in prior episodes. So without further ado, guys, why don't we go ahead and roll that show? All right, guys. Well, we are well into the new year already. How are things going? They're going pretty good, man. They're going pretty good. I, I would have to say that we have now moved on. Our reality TV show of choice is a lot more classy. We're we're back to Survivor. Great show. Excellent show. We got a subscription to Paramount Plus. So Paramount Plus is a plug. You know, sponsorship's always good from you. Uh, but it, it's been good. I, I love Survivor. I'm I'm sad to say that I have I have drawn the line at Paramount Plus. Um, I I've decided that I cannot and will not pay ten dollars a month for everything on the internet. So um, that's I'm drawing the line. But you can get Top Gun Maverick, <laughs> dude. Uh, there are some yeah some things that I still I just may never see. You can save that $10 to get yourself your favorite bottle of champagne, though, guys, because this episode is being recorded right around the time of the one-year anniversary of our first episode uh, in, in early January of 2022. How exciting. Yeah, hard to believe. That $10 can't get you a very nice bottle of champagne, but it'll have to do, you know? We're, we're <laughs> on a fellow budget. That's how we roll <laughs> over here. Well, guys, you know, I, I'm excited because today we are at the first of our episodes discussing our approaches to treatment of multiple myeloma. And again, this has been a highly anticipated series. I think we've done a fantastic job of breaking down a lot of these concepts. And now it's time to get into the discussion about how we take care of these patients when we make this diagnosis. And listeners, remember, there's going to be pretty extensive discussions about different treatment regimens, names of different studies, and you can be sure that the fellow on call will have that in our show notes on our website. So be sure to go ahead and check those out after the episode, just to make sure that you're able to keep up with the conversation if you don't get it the first time. 
So guys, as always, I think it probably makes sense for us to present a case just to, for the purposes of, of introducing a conversation. All right, so we have a 63-year-old previously healthy male with newly diagnosed IgG lambda multiple myeloma. He was referred to my clinic from an outside provider. So this patient got a bone marrow biopsy, which showed involvement of 50% plasma cells by IHC and an abnormal phenotype by flow cytometry. And then this patient also had FISH testing that did not show any of the following, a translocation 414, a translocation 1416, a deletion 17P, or an amplification of 1Q21. The patient had a karyotype that showed 46XY, and that was analyzed in 20 cells in metaphase, and so this was deemed standard risk disease. We did get this patient to undergo a PET-CT scan, and that showed widespread involvement of osseous structures and multiple roof fractures. So just to summarize, we have a 63-year-old previously healthy male with newly diagnosed IgG lambda multiple myeloma. And now the loaded question that I think we've been waiting to ask for quite some time now, what do we do next and how do we approach our treatment decision-making in this patient? Yeah, so you usually will hear people talk about the first branch point as being whether a patient is transplant eligible or transplant ineligible. And this is that's absolutely correct, but I think it's helpful to understand what the different phases of treatment that we're taking a patient through are first before we talk more about that. So in general, there are three main phases of treatment, sort of three and a half, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Induction is the first one. So similar to other hematologic malignancies, the idea with induction therapy is you're trying to induce a remission. You're trying to debulk the disease, usually with four to six cycles of therapy, and ideally get to a point where the M-spike is almost completely gone, almost resolved, such that we can't really find it on immunofixation anymore. This is that VGPR level that we, that we talked about before. A, a 50% reduction in M-spike, remember that's what we would consider a partial remission. That's okay. It's certainly, it's better than nothing. But um, again, we're really shooting for that VGPR. And ideally, we're getting that bone marrow plasma cell percentage to less than 10% when we're thinking about getting someone to transplant. And so after we've achieved that that level where we've debulked the disease adequately to get to a, a VGPR or better, we take that opportunity to collect stem cells. And we try and get those stem cells into the freezer before the patient's bone marrow has been too damaged from rounds of chemotherapy. And so the role of transplant really is, is to consolidate, is consolidation therapy. So a lot like our other hematologic malignancies, we're trying to deepen our response push that disease down further. And one way we know we can do that is with high doses of alkylator medication, specifically melphalan. The trouble is that with this high-dose melphalan therapy, which we'll sometimes call MEL200, is it causes so much toxicity that the marrow can't recover. So autotransplant is, is basically there to rescue that bone marrow. Remember that major dose-limiting toxicity of alkylators is marrow suppression. So we're giving these patients so much alkylator that it wipes out the myeloma to a large degree, but it also wipes out the bone marrow, the healthy bone marrow. So we have to give the patient back their own stem cells that we collected earlier to rescue their rescue rescue their marrow. And so for the transplant eligible folks, that's that's kind of the, the route that we go. 
Otherwise, we can try consolidation therapy with just more cycles of a similar regimen to the induction phase. After that, after we've consolidated somebody, we move on to a, a maintenance therapy. Oftentimes, maintenance is just going to be a lower dose of one or more of the components of induction or consolidation therapy. And the idea here is to just really maintain that response as long as we can and maximize a patient's quality of life, trying to change the trajectory of the disease to prevent organ damage from either return of myeloma or from you know, successive rounds of very high-dose chemotherapy. Commonly, things like the IMID drugs that we talked about last week, oral Revlimid, for example, these are sort of the things that you can see in, in that maintenance setting. And finally, sort of the last, uh, when I said three and a half, what I was referring to is, unfortunately, we do have to think about what happens if and when that disease comes back. Um, so that's sort of the relapse refractory setting. Some folks will be eligible for a second transplant, and so they kind of start the cycle over again with reinduction and then move on to a second auto transplant consolidation. Others won't be eligible for a second transplant, and uh, their treatment course moving forward will be more analogous to metastatic solid tumors, where you're kind of moving through successive lines of treatment until you get to disease progression or intolerable side effects. All, of course, keeping in mind the patient's goals with respect to length and quality of life. Um, so that's that's sort of the general framework I have. Yeah, Dad, that was great. And I think one of the key things to know is that in myeloma, for the most part, we believe this is an incurable disease. We will have to have these patients on therapy in the long term. However, nowadays, we're starting to think that can we possibly get a functional cure in a subset of these patients where they have a long break from treatment and live a relatively normal life and maybe die from some other comorbidity. And that's the key is that the best chance that we can get to that point is with the first round of induction, consolidation, and maintenance therapy, which is key and why we always think about stem cell transplant if possible. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think I finally understand why they call it induction, consolidation, maintenance. It's kind of intuitive when you think about it uh, in the way that you guys just described it. And also the other thing that I found fascinating from that, Dan, was that, you know, again, I think about transplant as this kind of amorphous thing, but really the goal of transplant is just to replace the person's own bone marrow with their own marrow after giving them high doses of chemotherapy to wipe hopefully all of the cancerous cells out of their marrow. So, so it's, you know, Again, when you think about it like that, it kind of all makes sense. And guys, I wanted to ask one thing about what Dan said. The first question he asked and posed was, is this patient transplant eligible or are they ineligible? So what kind of criteria are we considering to decide if someone is truly eligible or not? This is a really difficult concept to understand as a, as a newer fellow or a newer trainee. But the key thing here is that we're looking for patients with good physiologic reserves. There is no definite chronologic cutoff. We used to historically not transplant patients who are older than the age of 65, but now we know that those patients can have good long-term outcomes. And for patients who are maybe in that older range, 70 or older, or in some institutions, 65 or older, we dose-reduce that melphalan. Dan talked about mel 200 Melphalan 200 milligrams per meter squared is that dose. Sometimes we just dose reduce that to Mel 140. So we're 
taking down the dose. So chronologic age is not necessarily a cutoff. It is physiologic reserve, and we have a great episode with a transplanter coming up for all of you guys to really understand the nuances behind this. That makes sense. And and I suspect that also means that this is truly, as we say many times in, in our series, a multidisciplinary discussion that needs to be had. It's not really one person that's deciding if someone's transplant eligible or not. Is that safe to say? Yeah, it's absolutely correct. All right, great. So now we've established if our patient is going to be transplant eligible or ineligible based on some of these conversations. But, you know, in the meantime, while that process of transplant eligibility is being investigated, it is important that we start our patient on some sort of treatment. And so I've heard words thrown out there about, you know, doublet, triplet, quadruplet therapies. And so I think the time has come that we actually talk about what this means and how we design these combination of drugs together to get our treatment modality. So yeah, all myeloma therapy regimens are going to be multi-drug regimens, just as you referenced. And intuitively, like you said, doublet, triplet, quadruplet, that just says how many drugs are in those, those regimens. Triplet induction currently is the standard of care as of our recording of this episode. And, and we'll explain why in, in just a second. And it's also important to note that one of the drugs in these various combinations, however many drugs there are, is always going to be a steroid, dexamethasone in particular. The other drugs are going to be some combination of the following. A proteasome inhibitor. Remember, these are the drugs that end in that zomib suffix, so bortezomib, carfilzomib, exasimib. An immunomodulatory drug. These are the imids, or uh, they end in amide. So lenalidomide, thalidomide, pomalidomide, that sort of thing. CD38 monoclonal antibody, like daratumumab. That's the, the first one and the big one. Or an alkylator. Uh, cyclophosphamide is kind of what we use in the upfront setting. And previously, we used to use low-dose melphalan, the same drug we'll use in, uh, in our consolidation therapy prior to transplant. You'll see a ton of different combinations out there. But as long as you keep in mind, these different classes of drugs are typically going to be used in some combination along with dexamethasone. That, at least for me, has been helpful in simplifying these very complicated menu of choices that we have. I feel like I'm in a Harry Potter potions class with what you just said. But essentially, some sort of combination of these things you throw into your hypothetical cauldron and come up with their with their regimen. That's 100% accurate. Multiple myeloma is totally a potions class in Harry Potter. That's so true. We want to take a minute to tell you a little bit more about the sponsor for today's episode, Premum. Deciding on a patient's treatment plan but feeling overwhelmed by the constantly expanding universe of medical literature? Premum is a new platform designed to help you answer your patient-specific questions with insight from experts. Using the HIPAA-compliant platform, you can connect with leading subspecialists to have your questions answered. And even better, you can get your responses within one day and the website's free to use. Feel more confident that what you're doing is best for your patient. Man, I really wish I had something like this for multiple myeloma. If you want to learn more, visit Premum by using the special fellow on call link at tfoc.premum.co. That's tfoc.primum.co. So just to summarize what we've discussed so far, we have a 63-year-old male with newly diagnosed IgG lambda myeloma with standard risk cytogenetics. And if you don't remember what that is, be sure to check out our prior episode where we had this discussion about different types of cytogenetics and their risk factors. 
Um, and so this gentleman had standard risk cytogenetics. And from what we could tell in the discussions that were had behind the scenes, he most definitely was someone that we would want to highly consider for transplant. So guys, my next question to you is, I always hear about attendings calling people, you know, having high risk disease or lower risk disease and the implications that giving somebody a title like this would have on their management. So can we talk about what it means to be high risk in myeloma and how does that affect our treatment decision? Yeah, this is an extremely critical question when we think about patients because it does affect the way we think about them prognostically, no doubt about it. And now we have new data that we're going to get into in just a second that suggested it would change our treatment algorithm. So not one size fits all in this transplant eligible category. So broadly, transplant eligible or transplant ineligible. Question number two, high risk or not high risk. High risk is defined by high risk cytogenetics that we've defined previously, which is translocation 414, translocation 1416, deletion 17P, or amplification 1Q, and that's greater than three copies of 1Q on fish testing. Or circulating plasma cells in the peripheral blood. That is a high-risk feature. And one thing that we haven't defined that you will see written in the myeloma literature in the myeloma world, if you have greater than 20% of your set white blood cells in circulation as plasma cells, that is defined as plasma cell leukemia, and it has the worst prognosis when we think about these plasma cell dyscrasias. The last thing that is important for a high-risk feature is extramedullary disease. So an extramedullary plasmacytoma, so a solid ball of myeloma cells that's outside of a bony lesion, that is a high-risk feature, and many myeloma experts would consider that equivalent to something like a high-risk cytogenetic abnormality. You know, it's important to keep in mind that if we look at any of the meta-analyses or, or subgroup analysis in myeloma trials, these high-risk patients across the board seem to have worse outcomes. And so this is a, a pretty active area of, of research uh, in terms of how do we treat these patients. Now that we've identified them as high risk, how do we optimize their treatment regimen to address that higher risk disease? And, and we'll discuss how this can impact treatment decisions, both in the induction and maintenance phase in, in some of our discussion of the this current strategies in myeloma. I totally agree, Dan. And the other thing that people really need to realize is that revised ISS score, which uses LDH, albumin, and beta-2 microglobulin, is not the same as thinking about a high-risk myeloma patient. Think about the three criteria that we just talked about. High-risk cytogenetics, circulating plasma cells, or extramedullary plasmacytoma. Those are what generally are considered high-risk patients in myeloma. Well, thankfully for our gentleman, he didn't meet any of these qualifications to be considered high risk. So, you know, I'm I'm glad that in our case, truly our patient is standard risk. So with all, all of that in mind, the fact that he has this new multiple myeloma diagnosis, he is potentially transplant eligible, he does have standard risk features, what sorts of treatment options are available? I know I kind of asked that question earlier, but you know, what are some concrete regimens or examples of regimens that we can consider in this patient and that are being discussed in the literature today? And so just before we get into some of this data, I want to reiterate that the goal of induction therapy is to debulk a patient's disease, trying to achieve that 
remission, that, that VGPR at, or better, before somebody goes on to transplant. And it's, it's so important to do that because we know that patients' outcomes in transplant are better if we're able to achieve a, a better remission in the induction phase of therapy. That's why in a lot of these trials that we're going to be talking about, in addition to our standard you know, overall survival, progression-free survival, we're also going to be looking at the fraction of patients who achieve VGPR at six months or, or PR. You know, That's part of the reason why these other outcomes are so important in myeloma. Remember that that, that goal of induction is to tease somebody up to be successful in autotransplant. And so, Vivek, what is the current standard of care? What, what are we doing for these patients when they're first coming to, to start their induction treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and what you said is very critical, that we use a lot of surrogate endpoints, which are things like VGPR after induction and myeloma, because survival in these patients can be, in some cases, a decade, seven, eight years, 10 years, even longer. So we need to figure out ways to identify the efficacy of these new treatment strategies. So right now, the standard of care for transplant-eligible patients, there's no doubt about it, is a triplet regimen, and that includes an imid plus a proteasome inhibitor plus dexamethasone, and that is the standard of care. In the United States, we use VRD, you'll often see that as RVD, and that's Revlimid, Velcade, and dexamethasone. Remember that Revlimid is the same as lenalidomide. Velcade's the same as bortezomib, so we have lenalidomide, bortezomib, de dexamethasone, or revlimid, velcade, dexamethasone. And that was shown to be superior to a doublet regimen of revlimid and dexamethasone in a phase three trial called SWOG0777. And every single HEMOC fellow should look at that trial. It showed us a lot of great things. One, it established our standard of care for both transplant-eligible and transplant-ineligible patients at the time. And number two, it showed us that those who achieved a VGPR or better at one year had improved overall survival in a landmark analysis. So that really hit that point home. So check out that trial and check out our show notes. The second thing that is an option for one of these triplets is what is used in Europe. And this is important because it informs one of the quadruplet trials that we have in the modern era. And that's Velcade plus thalidomide plus dexamethasone. So basically, instead of Revlimid, you're replacing that with that first-generation thalidomide immunomodulatory drug. And we've talked about this in our previous episodes, about how thalidomide was taken off the market due to the fetal abnormalities, but then brought back onto the market. And in Europe, this was used as a standard of care instead of VRD. The reason for this is mainly due to cost. There was one big analysis that we looked at, and this is why in the United States we prefer VRD. It was an integrated analysis of several trials from the French groups and Spanish cooperative groups that looked at a lot of patients treated with myeloma. And what we found was that VRD seemed to have deeper responses than VTD. So that's one thing. So there's better responses. And the second thing that we saw was that VRD tended to have less toxicity and less neuropathy in particular. And we always want to prevent irreversible toxicity like neuropathy. So in the United States, we use VRD. In Europe, VTD was commonly used as standard of care regimen. The last thing when I said proteasome inhibitor plus 
imid plus dexamethasone is that we have a second generation proteasome inhibitor called carfilzomib. This is also known as kyprolis that we've talked about in our previous episodes. So we've studied KRD and found in phase two trials that it had remarkable potent activity in myeloma, and we thought that this would induce even deeper remissions, that we would get to more MRD negativity with this. And this was really played out a lot, especially for high-risk patients in the Forte trial. So that's another trial. I'm throwing it all out there, but the bottom line is this. KRD worked well in high-risk patients. So you'll see many providers choose a KRD induction for high-risk. In our next episode, we'll give you a little bit more of the details behind that. But you may be wondering, well, okay, high-risk KRD seemed to be better, but did we ever compare KRD to VRD if we think this second-generation proteasome inhibitor is better? And we did. And what we found was that there was no difference in overall survival or progression-free survival between KRD and VRD. And it's important to note that that trial did not include high-risk patients. And also, we found that KRD had more toxicity and was associated with more treatment-related deaths. And the only major toxicity that was higher in the VRD group was more neuropathy. Wow, Vivek, that was awesome. And so essentially, just like you said, our triplet therapies are our current standards of care where we're including an imid, a proteasome inhibitor, and also we are going to be having a steroid on board. If I remember correctly, one of the drug regimens that we talked about with Catherine Maples in our pharmacy episode was a drug combination called Cybor-D. So where does that fit into the treatment paradigm currently? Yeah, Renuk, that is a very good question, and it really is an important concept to highlight. So I always wondered for the longest time, I knew that we use that in renal insufficiency, that Cybor-D, which we've talked about before. That's often a preferred regimen to use because Revlimid is renally cleared, and we have more toxicity if we use Revlimid in a patient with an AKI. But what we do know is that we have looked at a few historical trials, and one of them that was really demonstrative really showed us that VTD was superior to Cybor-D. And that was a Europe trial, but the bottom line is we knew that Velcade, thalidomide, dexamethasone was better than Cytoxan, Velcade, and dexamethasone. So remember Cybor-D, Bor can also be Velcade. It gets complicated, but just remember that Bortezomib, Velcade, same thing. And we knew that thalidomide plus proteasome inhibitor plus steroid was superior. We then looked at another phase two trial that is incorporating more of the United States regimens. And we also found that those who got Revlimid, VRD, had deeper responses than those who got Cybor-D with less toxicity. So that is pretty much the big key. But another important takeaway from knowing about Cybor-D is that cyclophosphamide has activity in myeloma, and that's really important. And and lastly, guys, one of the drugs that I think Dan also mentioned was was the mention of daratumumab. So that is a anti-CD38 antibody. And so how does that fit into all of this? Because at that point, then we're having four different drugs. And in this case, all the regimens that we discussed are always triplets. So when do we consider adding a fourth into our treatment cocktail? What we thought is that we need to do better. Can we get more patients 
to a close to a functional cure standpoint by doing a quadruplet instead of a triplet. Historically, we used to do doublets, which we'll talk about in our next episode, but triplet beat doublet. So then we said, well, quadruplet might beat the triplet. And that is a very important thing that we're studying currently. There are four big trials in this space right now looking at quadruplet regimens for transplant-eligible patients. I'm going to give you the high-yield takeaway points for understanding when would I think about a quadruplet regimen versus when would I do a triplet regimen. So to start, it's important to know that there are three big regimens. One is DARA-VRD, daratumumab plus Velcade plus Revlimid plus dexamethasone. Another option is DARA-VTD. Remember in Europe, VTD was used instead of VRD, so DARA-VTD was studied in Europe. And lastly, we've looked at DARA-KRD, which is that carfilzomib or kyprolis is its other name for the K. So here are the big takeaways. In all of these studies, we know that adding the daratumumab resulted in higher CR rates and higher MRD negativity rates. That was true across these trials. And you know, this is a, I think it's a really exciting strategy because if you're thinking about drugs to layer on to a combination, adding a targeted monoclonal antibody type drug, that's probably the best you can do because the idea is you're going to possibly be increasing response rates and not adding substantially to toxicity. This is a very targeted agent and it's really going to just be going after plasma cells. So uh, in terms of the probability of increasing response without meaningfully increasing toxicity, hard to do much better than daratumumab. Yeah, and that totally held up in these trials, that you weren't really adding a ton more toxicity. Here's the one thing that remains unanswered. So like I said, we know that there are higher CR rates, deeper responses, more MRD negativity with this quadruplet regimen. The big unanswered question is, how long will that MRD negativity sustain in these patients? And when they relapse, did you waste your daratumumab up front when you could have done it in the second line? And what I mean by that is we're not just looking at progression time point number one. We're also looking at progression time point number two, that for many of these patients, they will not be cured. They will relapse. That's nearly inevitable in multiple myeloma. We're hoping there's a functional cure, but we have no proof of that yet. So the big question is, would this quadruplet regimen cause a sustained MRD And will that improve time to their second progression? Because now you don't have that daratumumab that used up front. And will that ultimately lead to an improvement in overall survival? I mean, it's obviously an important question. But like you said, that's something that's going to take a long, long time to answer. Uh, Patients with multiple myeloma live for years and years with the disease. And and so for that data to be mature, we're, we're looking at decades of study. Yeah, and, that, and that's the key is right now we have uncertainty. But what we do know is that this causes deeper responses. We believe that these deeper responses will translate into improved progression-free survival. And we believe that this improved progression-free survival could functionally cure some patients, giving them long treatment breaks and improve their overall trajectory of their disease. And we'll talk about the complexities of maintenance strategies and more details about this trials in upcoming episodes. But the major key takeaway is that quadruplet induces deeper responses, but has not shown 
to have superior progression-free survival or overall survival benefit to the triplet regimens definitively in randomized phase three trials. And there are ongoing trials that will look at this exact question, and it's still unanswered. So for our patients, when we think about quadruplet versus triplet, we don't know if quadruplet will improve that time to second progression and overall survival. We do know there's deeper responses, and we hope that will translate into cure. And it is very reasonable to stick with a triplet in the induction setting. There's no guidebook saying that you must do a quadruplet in induction, and we need more data for that. And the second thing is that patients with high-risk disease, we tend to gravitate towards KRD, because those patients ended up doing better in a trial. But again, some people would argue, well, if you're getting deeper responses with the quadruplet therapy, let's do a quadruplet therapy for higher risk disease. So that was a lot of talking, but all in all, just know this. Quadruplet, deeper responses, deeper remissions, maybe improves overall survival, not too much added toxicity. Triplet regimen remains the standard of care. Yeah, and so I think if I had to summarize everything we talked about, when you're first meeting a patient who has multiple myeloma, you figure out whether or not they're going to be eligible for transplant. That'll inform the overall trajectory of their therapy. But no matter what, you're going to start with an induction regimen. And the goal of that regimen is to debulk their disease, push it down as far as possible. When it comes to the current standards of care for induction therapy, we're looking at triplet drug combinations that include an imid drug, an immunomodulator drug, a proteasome inhibitor, and dexamethasone. There's some rumblings out there about what's going to be better for high-risk disease versus standard risk and whether or not we should be adding a fourth drug in daratumumab to these regimens for the long-term benefit. But for right now, that's, that's sort of how we're approaching uh, a patient with newly diagnosed myeloma. Does that all seem reasonable? That sounds great, and thanks for that summary. Yeah, and I'm also very much looking forward to these upcoming episodes. I feel like myeloma story time is becoming one of my favorite things to do. I think it really does show us how far we've come and does provide a greater appreciation for treatment of this disease. So, all right, y'all. I think that just about wraps up another great episode of The Fellow on Call. So until next time, we'll see you later. See you later. Peace.